now, your host. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Jay. And Trav's not with us tonight. Poor Trav's feeling under the weather. He's, he got cold in the node. Better than under the pavement. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the TriTac podcast, where we explore strange new worlds, including our own games and many other games as well. This week, we're talking about antiheroes and how to include them. Are you going to be an antihero and what does it mean? So answer that question, Blix, what is an antihero? I'm going to go to our favorite source, and I'm going to say the fountain of all knowledge, Wikipedia. They have a really good definition, and it's a little technical, and we'll go on from the technical definition into more like real speak, but they say... In fiction, an antihero, sometimes the antiheroine, as feminine, is generally considered to be a protagonist whose character is at least in some regards conspicuously contrary to that of the archetypal hero and is, in some instances, antithesis. Some consider the word's meaning to be sufficiently broad as to additionally encompass the antagonist who, in contrast to the archetypal villain, elicits considerable sympathy or admiration. The term dates to 1714, although liter- literary criticisms identifies the trope in earlier literature. Basically, what that means is it's someone who would otherwise be a bad guy, but they have some reason for you t- to identify with them and to cheer them on. He has a redeeming quality. Yeah, he has redeeming qualities. For or example, a redeeming goal. They are on the other side of the law or other side of the way things are supposed to be or the way people are supposed to act in whatever society's contract is. They act differently from that. However, they're not doing it to harm people. It's just the way they work. And otherwise, they are a good person. For example, rob from a baron who is overbearing, but then they would take that money and help the uh, poor people starving in the forest. A manly man in tights might do this? Yes, yes. So Robin Hood is is the quintessential anti-hero. But does the ends always justify the means? Well, I mean, that depends. Good question for it to put an anti-hero into. Yeah, the, the anti-hero blurs that question constantly. I mean, he, he, he rides that line. That's the line he's always, you know, skirting. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So why would a player want to play an anti-hero? Oh, because they're the most interesting character to play. If you're playing a straight-up white lace hero, you know, the guy with the white hat on the white horse with the white outfit, and he goes around and he does the good deed all the time, that's boring. It's very unidirectional, always know what the hero's going to do because he always does, you know, the right thing for the right reasons, and he does them in the right way. He tries to do them in the right way. Right. Remember, since everybody else isn't a hero, that creates a huge amount of conflict. Right. Conflict is good. If you're talking about, like, within a party of characters, your white knight hero can actually become interesting if, if nobody else is. Because then he becomes... A, a source of conflict inside the story. Right. The rest of the party to adhere to the straight and narrow. Hey, Blix, what do you call a hero in a party of villains? Um, dead? Lunch meat. Organ donor. Organ donor, right. And here's the thing. If you have the hero in a party of anti-heroes, then they're not just going to kill him because they're anti-heroes. They're not evil. They would have to actually put up with this guy. Now, they might abuse him in a lot of ways. Like, they might insult him. Take, for example, uh, Firefly. You take Firefly. The doctor 
that was a whole ship full of antiheroes. Right, except for the doctor. Right. The doctor was essentially your good guy. He was always at the, at the short end of the stick with everybody because he always wanted to do the right thing for the right reasons, and everybody else would always run into conflict with him. But they never really hurt him. Until he had to deal with his sister. That's when he, he crossed the other side, though. Right. Well, I mean, that's family. He broke the law, but he did it for a good reason to rescue his sister. That's I true. I mean, his, his, his motives were as pure as the driven snow if, you know, his uh, robbery. Well, I'm, also refer- I'm also referring to the episode where they broke into the hospital to do a scan on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was not afraid of violating other people's property rights in an attempt to assist his sister. Yeah. That's basically you take a good guy and put him in a bad position. Yep. But he's still a good guy. He's not an antihero. Yes, I agree with that assessment. And in that example, you had the character Jane, who is the hitter. Here's somebody who it, it tries really hard to be a villain a lot of times, <laughs> but ends up most of the time doing the heroic thing, even though he really didn't plan to. So that I would think he would be a good example as an antihero. I, I think Vera was his conscience. Yeah. <laughs> his gun? Yes. <laughs> What's funny about Jane is he's an antihero because he's a reluctant villain. He starts out his arc. I mean, there's the episode where they show him joining the Serenity crew. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's all there about the money. He, he's not there about anything else. Mal basically bribes him off the villain side by saying, I'll give you more money in your own room. And Jane just shoots his up-until-that-moment compatriot to shut him up while they're in negotiations. He's all there for the money. It's as the show progresses that you start to see him identify more with the crew, which is an interesting character arc. And that's where he steps away from being, you know, the pet psychopath into being the antihero. Right. And also when he finds out that there's an entire planet that treats him as a hero. (laughs) Now he has a standard he has to live up to. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they're going to be checking his Facebook page. (laughs) (laughs) Spacebook. (laughs) Spacebook. Hey, guys, tonight I was was out. I like to have a couple beers while we do this podcast. I I picked a special one for tonight because I knew we were doing anti-heroes. And it's Rogue Beer. And it's for the rogue in you. I've had it many times. I've never had it before. It's actually pretty good. I got the Juniper Pale Ale. Uh, you're going to get Dead Guy. Dead Guy's really good. Okay. Well, this was just for this podcast, so just so you know. Dead it, it, Guy, John. It, it's our proud, non-paying sponsor. We're not going to steal the accidental survivor shtick here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they always have a drink check at the beginning of each of their podcasts. Oh, really? They're also a modern role-playing podcast. Oh, really? Okay. Well, no, I'm not trying to steal that shtick. We've, we've never done this before. I was just mentioning it because I just so happened to get it for this episode. Back into the topic. Now, how would you use antiheroes in your campaign there? Did we get enough examples of what antiheroes are? We need at least one more. Let's do a couple more. Let's go with the next guy, which is the man with no name. From the good, bad, and, and the ugly, and the, uh, and the rest of the trilogy. And the few dollars more. Fistful of dollars. Blondie. 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 Yeah. That's uh, Tuco. See, I called that up after I found out I didn't remember anybody's name for that movie. Clint Eastwood played the man with no name, or Blondie. Eli Wallach played Tuco, the ugly one of the title. Okay, you just can't call him Tuco. It's Tuco Benedico Pacifico Juan Maria Ramirez. What makes the character of Blondie uh, an antihero rather than just some thug villain? He only shoots people what need it. Okay. Invariably, he's shooting in self-defense. 
he spreads death and destruction from the end of his pistol, but you got to draw first. But he also gives him a chance. Does he go out of his way to help anybody in this in the in the movies? I don't recall. I think he showed a few moments of compassion for some dead people. <laughs> no, no, that's right. At the bridge with the Civil War guys, uh, he and and Tuco blew up the bridge. Wasn't there a teenage girl he took under his wing? Yeah, there's damsel in distress in at least one of these movies. Yeah. In one of those movies, but I was thinking specifically of the good, the bad, and the ugly. I haven't seen the other two in a very long time. Yeah, I haven't seen any of these in a really long time, so I can't really speak on them anymore. I, I, I feel ashamed because they're such good movies. I should have seen them again by now. Oh, it was, actually, it was on last night at AMC. I, I missed it. I should have watched it. <laughs> I, I had so, I I the good, the bad, and the ugly on uh, DVD somewhere, but... So he's he. We just like him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's a really tough guy. I mean, he, he completely defines the term badass. Right. Walking through this mythic old west, looking for a profit opportunity, when bad people come up and start messing with him, and he lays waste to them, and that's your basic uh, Bugs Bunny morality there. Uh, don't right. start it, but always finish it. What do you think of the Bruce Willis Last Man Standing uh, version of that? I haven't seen that one yet. It's basically a remake of that movie. There's other series of movies he did. I don't think Bruce Willis was an anti-hero in the Die Hard films. No, no, he's a hero in that. I think that's a hero. Yeah. yeah he's, a right. t- he's a tough talking hero, but he's a hero. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's in it entirely to take care of the bad guys and kick butt. A good guy. But he's also doing it because they made him. He's also doing it to defend innocent people. Yeah. If he just walks away, he doesn't even get a scratch on him. They blow the top off the building and take his wife and, and several other people. And it's just getting a movie that the potential death toll gets larger and larger. But here's the thing. I get the feeling from his character that even if it wasn't his wife in there, he still would have done all the things that he did. He does that in other movies, yeah. Because he's a hero. Right. He's a tough-talking, rough hero. And the reason why I'm bringing that up and why I'm really kind of like sticking on that a little bit is because we need to draw the line between hero, anti-hero, and villain. An antihero actually has to be a guy who does things wrong. I mean, he, he has to be a guy who skirts the law or, or social norms. And he will walk away if it's too bad. Han Solo tried to walk away a couple of times. The antihero, again, we go back to Clint Eastwood as the man with no name in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. He's not there for anybody but himself. Yeah. He just happens to be walking through, and bad guys start pulling guns on him under the impression that he has more of an interest than he has. If they had said, Eh, whatever, and walked away from him, he would never have done anything because he wasn't there for anybody else. And I think really that identification with other people is part of where that very gray line between hero and anti-hero. A hero who's closer to the anti-hero side may care for one or two people, but not anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so if you endanger his loved one, he will go to their rescue. That would be an anti-hero who's in it because he has a point of identification with the problem. He's there about the very specific person. He's not there about the idea of right and wrong or that the villain is doing something villainous. He's, he's there because the villain is doing something specifically hurtful to him. Well, don't forget, too, that the plot of the, of the movie Good, Bad, and the Ugly was that they were trying to retrieve this fortune right. of gold. They stumbled across the clue leading them to massive gold. And the man with no name says, oh, yeah, I'll go get gold. No problem. Because, you know, gold is kind of morally neutral. You grab it and you go spend it. Yep. You know. I got a question for you now. Stick it on the Western theme. So Rooster Cogburn from True Grit, hero or anti-hero? He's a hero, but an enormously rough hero. 
he gets tapped by the girl to go round up the men who killed her father. At that point, he's identifying with the girl specifically. Right. But as he goes on, you find out that he has a big issue with people who are murderers and criminals, and he shoots them. Right. Now, this is really rough justice. This is frontier justice. Mm -hmm. That wonderful line, fill your fist, you son of a bitch. Mm -hmm. He's saying, okay, we're having a fight now, and you've got a chance, but I'm going to kill you because I'm John Wayne. (laughs) You know? So even though he could look like an antihero, he is a hero. He puts himself in danger, gleefully throws himself into danger to bring down murderers and other criminals. Mm -hmm. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because they are, how should I say, authorized targets. Uh, The radio show Gunsmoke played this up. The TV version of Gunsmoke was really washed out. But in the uh, radio show version of Gunsmoke, Matt Dillon was sort of an antihero. He was a killer. He was a stone-cold killer, but he stuck to the law and killing bad people as a way of defining himself as a good guy. He took this part of himself that he viewed as horrible and ugly and tried to put it to the service of the good. Okay. And so that is kind of an anti-hero attitude. So Rooster Cogburn is doing roughly that same thing. He's a thug, but he's a thug who fixes his targets very carefully. You have to have been on the wrong side of the law, the wrong side of doing injury to somebody. And then either he's taking you in or you're going down. Okay. In a similar vein, how do you feel about William Mooney, um, uh, Money from Unforgiven? Uh, Okay, William Money from Unforgiven. That was Clint Eastwood's character? Yeah. Nobody was entirely in the right and nobody was entirely in the wrong. It was all about the gray area and how the gray kind of fell away when you were pointing guns at people's face. Yeah. In the end, though, the sheriff? Little Bill Daggert. (laughs) Yeah, in the end, he did not necessarily deserve to die, but he had done such a thing as to put himself in that position. But Clint Eastwood's character in Money is also, you know, putting himself in a position where if somebody shot him, it would be called a good shoot, too. So there's overlapping lanes of self-defense and aggression in there that that are really interesting. That's what makes it such a good movie. But I think... The thing was really cleared up when Money walks into the bar and says, you should have thought of that before you used my friend as a decoration. At that point, you know, it's it's a very specific set of harm and it's a very specific set of revenge that he's after. But wasn't that really just a justification? I mean, this is a man who makes his living by killing people. He's evil. Personally, I, I get the opinion that Gene Hackman crosses the line from antihero to villain in that he's mean-hearted. He's got a hard heart. So it's not just a matter of – he had this issue with conquering. Like he, for him, the whole thing was more about control. Yeah. And he had to be the one in control. And that <laughs> – you know what I mean? The whole point of the movie is we open on money trying to live on the straight and narrow. And then he gets word of this bad person way, way over there who did something horrible. And that's an authorized target. We can go get him and make some money. Mm-hmm. As they go along, Morgan Freeman's character tells him about some of the adventures. And I think that's kind of a call out to the spaghetti westerns. Right. You walked right. into that room and shot everybody in that bar. Eastwood's character looks up and goes, I did what? He has no idea. He was in a drunken blackout. Hmm. It kind of takes that man with no name total badass thing and flips it on its head to show you how sick a real person would have to be to do that kind of crap. How right. well, that's, uh, broken that, and destroyed a person would have to be. So, yeah, they're really throwing everything into the gray in, in Unforgiven. 
at the end, I think uh, Eastwood's character finds redemption by very thoroughly putting down the gun and walking away from it. And they say in a, a placard after the fact that he went to San Francisco and, and started making money as a merchant instead of failing as a farmer. Right. It's an interesting movie. And yeah, it loves to put the characters into those gray situations where whatever they're doing, it has elements of good and elements of bad to it and elements of wrong and scary. Cool. I don't know if we need to do a whole lot more examples, but I think a really, really good one is Farscape, where you have that whole crew. Crichton himself is, is, is a hero. He's not He's any... a hero, right. That's what I was going to say. You have the whole crew, for the most part, are kind of villainous. I think Dargo is a hero. He's kind of a fugitive, though, right? At that point, you're kind of reaching out to the social law. So an evil empire has a set of laws, and if you go outside that, you're an anti-hero. Right. I don't see that because, you know, a, a good man disobeys an evil law. I hear you. Mm-hmm. But I think that the show, as the show evolves, they actually do kind of become antiheroes and, and maybe out of necessity. And that's, that's the interesting point I want to bring up because sometimes the hero will switch to antihero or maybe even skirt the line of villain out of necessity. The point of a story and this is more of a, a literary thing than a role-playing thing. I'd love it when I get to do it to role-playing characters. But mm-hmm. it's to put them in a bind, to put them at the point of a decision, to put to give them a real problem and see what they do with it. Right. There's a type of role-playing where it's, it's so many puzzles and so many encounters, but the, the more story-based thing is, you know, how can I challenge this character's notion of how the world is supposed to work? And so I guess that's what they did with Crichton and the gang on Farscape is just put them in, in situations where they had to choose one thing or another and make the best choice they could out of a set of bad choices. Like when they robbed the Shadow Depository. I'm sorry, it, I haven't seen much of Farscape at all. Well, it, it's where gangsters mostly put their money. Again, we're robbing gangsters. Bad guys well, doing bad things and you show up and stick a gun in their face and say, I am liberating your cash. Hey, hey I understand that, but, but and, and that's fine. And if it was like honest people's money, then they're a villain. But they're robbing from gangsters, so they're an anti-hero. Because a hero wouldn't rob a bank either way because it's still stealing. Unless you immediately take it and restore it back to the people it was taken from. Right. A hero won't do that. An anti-hero will because he'll be able to say, hey, look, this is ill-gotten gains. A hero this would restore stolen gains. property to its original owner, but to rob a bank of gangster money and then keep it for yourself and run away and go, ha you suck to be you, you know, right. that would be kind of an anti-hero move. That's much right. more chaotic than it is, you know, lawful good. For example, listen, you got Spider-Man, when he beats up the villain, if there's a pile of money laying there that the villain managed, like the kingpin, Spider-Man won't take a dime of it. No. Because Spider-Man is a hero. That's true. The okay. Punisher will bring up a uh, flat cart. He will be good to go. Right, but he's not a villain, he's an anti-hero, and he's going to use that money to take down other villains. Right. It's a good place to draw the line. I like your example there, that's a, that's a good one, because you're right, Peter Parker wouldn't touch it for with, with a 10-foot pole. Right. So I think that's a good demarcation line for hero and anti-hero, is you, you put yourself in that position. Would my character take money that wasn't his? Doesn't matter the reason, it's not his. I had a character in a superhero game who was running around kicking in the doors of all the drug dealer houses in the, in the city until the, the uh, Captain Good Guy uh, main character sat up down and said, don't do that. Right. 
Well, I never play heroes. I mean, I, I think I've played a hero once or maybe twice. I played a paladin once, and I, and I played him pretty well. The it's fun boring. of that is trying to find out how his narrow set of right and wrong lines line up with a fairly randomized set of circumstances. That's the fun in playing a paladin. And, and a lot of times it's challenged by the other characters in the campaign because we have two players that play in our group regularly who play anti-heroes, but they lean towards villain. Ah. So, so for me to play my character, if I were to play a hero, we wouldn't work out. I have to adjust my character concept or else, in all reality, he'd try to kill the other two. Or try to so, arrest them and take them to a lawful authority or something. To keep the game moving and everything, I find a reason why my character can deal with it, and it's usually just to become more of an anti-hero leaning towards good. The only justifiable reason for a hero type to keep an anti-hero type with him is because he's leading the anti-hero along the path of redemption. Or the hero has a really stretchy sense of tolerance. There are several lawful good gods who have flexible definitions of lawful goods. How do we apply this to Fringeworthy? How do we uh, put these pieces together? Or Bureau 13. Incursion, yep. you are the anti-hero. Basically, you got a ship that everyone wants. You stole that ship. You have no rifle claim to it. You are Farscape, for, for all intents and purposes, what we just talked about. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Has there been a piece of popular media in the last 15 years that, that wasn't ripping off Rich? <laughs> not, not really. <laughs> you woke up on that ship. That's not a claim to ownership. I think it's justifiable for people who've been Shanghai'd to overthrow the crew and go to a nearest safe port. It's when you look at that safe port and say, no, I I'm keeping my ship, that you're an anti-hero, Bill. <laughs> right. Right. Because I'm sure that the powers that be would definitely want to uh, claim the ship, oh, yeah. at least un under the guise of saying it's for restitution. You know, we're going to take the ship and yeah. and uh, sell it, you know, on the open market and take or, the money and give or, it back to the people that were. Here's our ancient title to that ship saying it was ours all along. Don't touch a kid, you'll smear the ink. <laughs> and think about it like this, you know, you have to eat and you have to like get by and you're in this the space that is far advanced beyond what your capabilities are. I mean, you're not – you wouldn't know how to fix a ship or get a job in, the, in this environment. So you have to survive somehow. So you're forced into being an antihero because where are you getting your money? I'm thinking that it's a very justifiable piece of antiheroism on the case of the PCs in Incursion to right. take the Ardana new and keep going. If you're being an absolute – I mean a complete absolute stickler for – doing things by a right code. you got to find out who the pirate stole the Ardana New from and give it back to them or hand hey, it over hey, to lawful authorities. But, Jay, it goes beyond that. How do you eat? How do you get new stuff? How do you get fuel? Doing the right thing doesn't address those questions. You're going to have to deal with that after you do the right thing. Right. Well, the answer to your question is, is they could have taken the ship to the Commonwealth. They would have said, well, here – we're going to hand you over to the equivalent of the Traveler Society, and they would give you a basic education in the galactic culture, hand you a couple hundred credits, let you stay in a hostel for a little while, and then you go out and get yourself a job doing some menial labor until you can find some reason why someone should pay you more credits. I mean, that's what should happen if you're going to play by the rules, mm -hmm. and that's what would have happened. The realistic result would have been them losing that ship. Yeah. But since the, it is the crux of them being able to get home, they have to use whatever justification they have to in order to hold on to it. Yeah. And you're right. It pushes them into the role of the anti-hero because they essentially have to throw themselves contrary to the law 
in order to achieve their ultimate goal, which is to get home, which is a fair goal. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Talked about an awful lot about you being an antihero and the reasons why you might be forced into being an antihero. Okay. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, you know, you're playing the heroes, but you end up allying yourself with antiheroes. Okay. A, a lot of times uh, in, in a game, most of the players are going to play people who fall into the antihero role by that really, really strict definition of doing the right thing. And that's because uh, uh, most people don't sit down and think it all the way through to that kind of fidelity. They just grab what's the right thing right in front of my face. You know, a little girl says, they took my mommy. So you grab somebody's car and go chasing after the guys who took mommy. You're focused on they took my mommy as the problem to be solved and taking the nearest, most efficient route towards that, even if it breaks the law. And so a lot of people tend to play uh, people who take that more direct route towards achieving the good result. Right. But I'm talking about cases where you would need to ally yourself with other antiheroes versus the righteous good that you would probably want. I mean, think of most of your traditional fantasy quests. There's the head of a religious order. There's this council of elves. You know, there's the king who gives you a quest and you go and, and try to, to fulfill this quest. And sometimes you find yourself coming up short on whatever it is you need to do. Mm-hmm. And you theoretically at that point should be able to turn to somebody else and say, hey, help me. I'm on a great quest and it's a good quest and you should help me. And you find them unavailable. Mm. The cops are all busy fighting other crime. You know, they're not interested in helping you track down the vampire. The king uh, is unavailable. Negotiations with another state. Mm-hmm. The church has, uh, you know, got all its money tied up in uh, supporting the orphans and drunken sailors. <laughs> they have no money to help uh, outfit your group mm-hmm. with, you know, what you need in order to go up against the big bad dragon. So... You have to turn to people who aren't necessarily in the mold of the straight and narrow. The Hobbit Bonlevin Association. If for no other reason than because they're probably available. John, did you just say the Hobbit Liberation Organization? The Hobbit Benevolence Association. <laughs> oh, the Hobbit Benevolence Situation. Now you got me picturing hobbits with dish towels wrapped around their heads. <laughs> it's the infamous Hobbit Mafia. You know, oh, dear. If you're talking fantasy games, most games favor the halflings as thieves. So, of course, there's this uh, enormous Hobbit mob. Ah, okay. <laughs> Come on in. We'll treat you like family. The thing that kind of drives the true sterling hero and the anti-hero together is usually a commonality of aims. In both cases, they want to kill the dragon. The sterling pure hero wants to take down the dragon because he's hurting people. And the anti-hero wants to take down the dragon because the, the horde will be much easier to walk out of the cave with after that. Yeah. But both of them have in common that they want to take down the dragon. Right. And so it's that commonality of aims that brings the disparate people together. Right. In this case, with the dragon horde, I don't think the stalwart hero would have any problems picking up a few golden crowns and so forth for his church, you know. Uh, yeah, either he donates it all to the church or he needs to find out who the dragon stole it from and try to return it to the rightful owners. Right. There's, a, there's an interesting quest. Yeah, because he doesn't need money. His needs are provided by his sponsors, either God or the church or whoever. I come about my money fairly. Right. 
voluntarily. And in most of these cases, when the hero returns, having fulfilled the quest, usually he's granted a large section of land, uh, possibly the same land that the dragon was residing in, because nobody else wanted it because the dragon was there. Yeah, the last legitimate owner is Dragon Poo somewhere over there. And if, in fact, is the gold is so great that everyone becomes rich as Crozier's, then the economy collapses and all the money disappears real quickly anyways. Yeah. Who was it who said every time you bring up real-life science in a fantasy game, a god kills a cat girl somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, in Incursion, everybody wakes up on the Ardana New. It's kind of thrown into this position of, let's make the ship get the heck out of here. In uh, Bureau 13, you might wind up dealing with any number of people because there are horrible things out there in the dark waiting to snack on your butt. Right. But in terms of Fringeworthy, Fringeworthy, they kind of have to take who they can get as the Fringeworthy. It's a randomized chance. Once they're out on the fringe paths, how are they going to get along with other parties and other people and other factions with other aims? Every time we've played Fringeworthy, my characters always get harder because what you run into changes you know if you're playing your character and you're and you're thinking mm-hmm. in terms of a real person my characters always become harder and more like coarse because of the things that have happened to them they become more serious every single time it, a realistic reaction to violence and mayhem Who would have right so your characters are on a path of disillusion is that what you're telling me when i'm playing friends with the i generally start out with a character who is like a real person and and you know and, and views you know, all the social laws and everything and, and has been, you know, I, I try to treat them as if they've been raised in a, in a normal society. And then they get out on the French path and everything goes wonkers because they're encountering all these societies that are they're completely different, have different angles. And then they, you know, they run into to Mellers who like just completely destroy all concepts of any kind of, you know, normal social behavior. They just become more ready to do whatever needs to be done, you know, to win the day. It's like, if I hit this button, it's going to kill a thousand people. It's like, yeah, but it's going to save a million and I'm willing to do it now. Whereas that character, when he first joined IDET, would have never have considered that kind of thing. Would have been like, no, 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 we have to figure out a way to save everybody. No, no, hard decisions need to be made and we need to make them. That's my characters generally tend to, to go down that slope. Mm-hmm. So they go from people who have a relatively developed idea of right and wrong, although one not tested it by reality, the right. people who become very, very pragmatic and goal-oriented yes. as they Yes, go. because if you run Fringeworthy properly, every character should face those those questions. Oh, yeah. Right, but they don't have to choose to become, as you said, harder and more pragmatic. They can still hold on to their ideals. They just may be willing to perhaps bend a little bit on the application of those ideals. That's just the direction I go. Maybe that's the way I would be as a real person. If I really was put into that situation, I'm assuming that's that's probably how I would develop because every character I've ever had goes in that direction because I can't think of a different direction to go in presented with those situations. I tend to like to play fish out of water Boy Scouts. I have fun with that. But at a certain point, you know, they always get to a point where they know that people are generally being dickish and they're idealism gets kind of crushed down to this neutronium ball of I'm going to do the right thing and I don't care where you're going, right? So it becomes Mm -hmm. in and of itself kind of a a hard adherence to doing the right thing. 
and knowing that people are going to call you names about it, and who cares? Because I may not live out the day. I've noticed in Fringeworthy Games what a lot of times happens is you have a lot of characters who will just be kind of go-along characters. One person is kind of running the show, and they're all going along, and they go along, and finally he says, okay, and then we're going to do this, and someone goes, oh, no, we're not, or I'm not going to do that. Right. And they just draw a line in the sand and says, we're not crossing that line. You know, we're going to have to find another solution. That's the point where the game gets interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's where as a GM you sit back with a grin on your face and say, I don't know, what are you doing? I finally got them someplace. I finally hit a nerve. Yeah. Well, Bruce, that's exactly the challenge I was making in the Deutschland Uber Alice adventure that you were on, where I had an atomic bomb that you could arm and, and blow up in the middle of Berlin and possibly take out Hitler and, and, and destroy their nuclear capability. But to do so, you'd have to take out Berlin. Right. Lots so- of innocent people in it. Right. The thing was is that that idea is presented to the whole party, and most of the people are like, yeah, let's get them. Let's blow it up. Our group said no. Our group said no, we're not going to bring it to the surface. We're going to destroy the complex where this device was developed so that they can't build another one, at least not easily, and we're going to get the scientists out of there. They were being forced to work against their will, Right. and there will be some collateral damage of the soldiers who are there who are just doing their job, but ultimately we're going to save who we can save, but we're not going to take out a city just to take out Hitler. But I put that in there on purpose to push that button. Yeah. It's a good question. Those kinds of questions are always good. Let's release this virus that'll kill all the bad guys. Men, women, child, small mewing babies. Infants. Infants, whatever. So they're all going to be dead. We ran into an interesting variation on that in in a Dungeons and Dragons game I was playing a, a while ago. Oh, about 15 years ago now. Ack, I'm old. Uh, <laughs> Slips up on you, doesn't it? Yeah, what's it does. Our, what's that, Sonny? <laughs> well, we were, we were shuffling along this path into the hills there, and, and I was getting my walker stuck in all the rocks. We were attacked by hill giants. Oh. Wiped out the hill giants, and then our party went into the hill giant cave and found a hill giant baby uh-huh. who we had just orphaned. Yep. One of the players just stopped and said, no, I'm not going to kill a baby. It's my baby now. i got to take care of the baby. And the GM got this bunny in the road look. Oh, it was great. <laughs> he, he, and he said, no, see, it's it's inherently evil. And we said, no. I mean, the whole part, everybody in this playing just refused to buy the idea that a small baby could be inherently evil and already dedicated to the forces of evil just by its nature. They're all, no. I mean, they'd never sat down and thought about this or or what the implications were or what the idea of dark races were. They just had this knee-jerk, no, a baby can't be evil. It's nature versus nurture. (laughs) Yes, and yeah, I enjoyed it because it was an interesting thing. It it was an interesting twist on the situation. It was an interesting spin, and it made the GM almost cry. I love doing that in in an adventure where it goes off in a direction that the GM's really scrambling to catch up. And at the same time, I really enjoy it when players do it to me. When they see something that I didn't see, and then go off into left field, and I'm going, wow, I never even saw that turn. Okay, what am I doing now? Honestly, Jay, you bring up a good point. That's another thing that antiheroes do a lot of times, too, is that they challenge the GM's concept of where he thought the adventure was going to go. Now, when I'm game mastering, I love it. I absolutely love it when my players, not, not when they're being like jerks, you know, and just doing something different just to be different, just to be a jerk. When it's in character, it's lovely. Yeah. When it comes across honestly, I love it. Like 
like I had these these two guys that I was running this one con, and these two guys were they decided that the characters they were playing were going to be Viking ish. They were going to be partiers, and 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 they didn't care about like money so much. They just cared about having a good time, and the only thing they wanted as treasure was a donkey and a cart on the back of it with a keg on the back of the cart. <laughs> and I was like, they wanted to have a long tailgate party. Right. I'm like, that's what you want as your treasure. And they're like, yep, that's what we want. And I was like, that's awesome. But I mean, that's just a small example of that. But, but I, I just, I love it when players just completely come out of left field, but they do it honestly and within character. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. This is Jay. No, think of the cat girls. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.